Good evening, folks. I'm starting this off just a little bit different. I want to give you a teaser about what we're going to talk about tonight. H. Edward Tickle, Jr. He was once considered the FBI's foremost expert in secret break-ins. He was the ultimate bag man or black bag expert for the FBI. They had a term for the people that would uh, break in and install hidden microphones and cameras and things like that. And they called them bag men, and it was a black bag job or just a bag job. In 1980, Mr. Edward Tickle, at that time former FBI agent, was sentenced in federal court in Alexander, Virginia to eight years in prison for transporting stolen diamonds, obstruction of justice, tax evasion, and two other charges. You put 50,000 in cash money in the clock, right? 300 Quaker, probably in the clock, on the 10 They steal the store, they turn it to cash. Okay, I'm on the northbound actor. Uh, it's right at the light. Look, I think, Carl, what's the house going to do? If you like what you hear, go to ganglandwire.com. We need you to put a hit out on our donate button. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ganglandwire. Follow true crime storyteller Gary Jenkins on Twitter at JenksLaw. Buy the DVD Gangland Wire or download the Kansas City Mob Tour app. And now, here's Gary Jenkins. Good evening, everybody. It's great to be back here in the beautiful Ice House in Midtown Kansas City in Studio 4, the Big Dumb Fun Show. I'm here with my friend and co-host, Aaron. Say hello, Aaron. Hello, Aaron. Well, we last week, last episode, if you're tuning in, this is the second of a two-part episode about planting hidden microphones by the FBI and doing wiretaps. I played a little bit from a wiretap last week, told you a little bit about that process and, and what has happened here in Kansas City that I, I know about. You know, we, we do things, at least I try to do something that either I get somebody that was directly involved or I was directly involved in the situation we're talking about, some kind of a law enforcement situation, a crime story, if it will. We went down to St. Louis last week and met one of the criminals that we had a show about, Martin McNally. We had a three-part episode about... A two-part episode. We, we, oh. There were two episodes that we talked about hijacking. Okay, I stand corrected, folks. <laughs> I did the same thing in the uh, last episode uh, on this when I was talking about this. I'm so excited about... We, we interviewed Martin McNally. He had commented on... The comments section of my website after he listened to the episodes we did without him because we didn't know where he was. We knew he was out of the joint and somewhere, but we did had no idea where he was. He commented. He liked the he thought they were hilarious. He, he liked what we did. He said we got it wrong. And he invited us to come down to St. Louis and, and let him tell the story from his mouth. So we'll be working on editing that. We spent the whole day with the guy. He's quite an interesting guy. I know when I saved the uh, audio file on the laptop we took to do recording, uh, you also had, we just had like two, three different sources of recording for audio. We also had the three video cameras rolling. He had a webcam going, which I'd love to get the copy of that just so we have the shot of the three of us all in the room. But uh, it was easily over six hours of, of raw recording. We filled up some 32 gigabyte uh, SD cards. We in did. the process, and it's a great story. 
And uh, I thought interesting that he said he Googled his own name and found the episodes that we had, listened to the first one, commented, and then, and then like an hour later, he'd gotten done listening to the second episode, which really was more and more detail about him, I think. Yeah, it was. Uh, where the first one was kind of D.B. Cooper, and then there was a series of copycat cr- crimes. And then he commented, you know, it was hilarious, and we got things wrong, and if we had any questions to to contact him. So that was uh, just, uh, it was amazing. It's kind of crazy, actually. That, uh, you know, I always say that, you know, people want to tell their story. They do. All right. Let's, uh, fun fact. I told you we were going to start doing fun facts. Fun fact about me, maybe not so fun. I had asthma horribly as a kid. I grew up on a farm and, and I could, I kind of liked it in a way because I didn't have to go out and work so much. (laughs) (laughs) But I still did. I'd, I'd, I'd work out the farm and then I'd. It would take about three or four days, and I'd get a really bad asthma attack, and then I could get to stay at home the next day or two, and then I'd go back out and work on the farm. So, How did you overcome the asthma? You know, I, I outgrew it. They told me at the time that many times you, many people will outgrow their asthma, mm-hmm. and I outgrew it. I haven't had an attack. The last real full-fledged attack I had was before I came on the police department. I had... I had some kind of minor incidents while I was in the academy because we were, it was a fall. We were doing all this running and stuff outside, and uh, uh, and I think there's a little stress aspect to the asthma. You know, asthma can be created by, by stress. stress and, and, and But I have not had anything since then. Once in a that, while in the fall. That could have knocked you out of the academy. It could have. If I'd had a real full-fledged attack while it was going on. But see, I never had that fast attack. I only got it in the middle of the night. And then I would, I had this powder that I smoked. I'd light this powder up and it stunk and it crackled and popped and I'd inhale the smoke and I'd take a little pill called a Franol, which was some kind of a barbiturate. I remember reading the the, uh, directions on what the pill was and I'd do that. And then I'd spend a day just lazing around, not doing anything and watching TV and (laughs) having fun reading and uh, the next day after that, I'd be okay. So and they put you back to work. Put me back. Yeah, they put me back to work. I have a good work ethic, folks, and, and it comes directly from that. And you know, I'm glad it happened to me. I didn't like it at the time, but it makes everything in life easier mm-hmm. when you have that really hard work that you're forced to do as a kid. So, what about you, Aaron? You got any other fun facts? Well, I mean, we're talking. I don't know if you say fun fact of asthma as a fun fact, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> along the same lines, I'd have to say I, uh, I had been diagnosed with epilepsy. Oh, really? I didn't know that. I, uh, I probably had been hit in the head a number of times, yeah. uh, over the years, once uh, standing too close to the catcher and caught a bat in the forehead. And then I was in the, uh, in, in high school, I was in the improv, not uh, in high school. I was, do oh, that two, three in high school. I was on a tumbling team. And um, performing at a uh, a rodeo, I did a a, a flip off of a like a, a six foot long table, and I did a flip and a half, and I glanced off my head. I had a concussion, and uh, and fractured a, a bone in my finger. But then uh, probably eight months later, I was waking up one morning to go to a, a debate. I was in debate in in high school. I was a debater. That makes sense. You got a great voice. Yeah, I wasn't a master debater. <laughs> That's good. But, <laughs> but I uh, was getting up, or I woke up to go to, to get ready to go to this debate, and I had a seizure. 
which I'd never had before. And so, I mean, I really thought I was dying and, and my, I came out of it or whatever. And I went to the debate and, and then my, I told my mother about it. They didn't believe me. And probably maybe a month or so later, I had a second seizure. And this time, um, I guess I burst a blood vessel in my nose and I came upstairs and my face was all bloody and I scared my mother. And then we went to the hospital and we went to the doctor and they did an electroencephalogram and said, oh, well, you have epilepsy. And wow. they put me on Dilantin and had a number of, I, I kind of grew out of it. I, I don't take Dilantin. I really take no medicine for it at this time. And I haven't had seizure at all probably since the last episode. How long ago was that? Oh, I don't know, 30 minutes ago. <laughs> if you're listening to this and you keep listening to the next one. No, that's a joke. I, I know. It's been, it's been many, many years, and I'm very fortunate for that. After all, you are a comedian. Well, that's interesting. We both had some kind of childhood illnesses, which we've outgrown. Go figure. Anyhow, let's get on to our story. Uh, we were talking about a, a world-class... FBI agent who was the was a legend at installing hidden microphones and breaking into places. They called that non-destructive entry. You said he was the black bag man. He was a black bag man, and he came to Kansas City. Matter of fact, play that other. I'm going to show you a little bit of an audio from a hidden microphone that he put in at the law offices of. Quinn and Peoples, and, and this is not a back-and-forth conversation, although Tuffy DeLuna was sitting there. This is, I just cut out a little snippet from Nick Savella, and he is talking about his problems with Lefty Rosenthal, who was the Robert De Niro character, and what he he called him on the phone, or he, he was, yeah, he had called him on the phone, which we don't have that audio. That got lost somehow. And this is some of the things that he said to him. So go ahead and play that, Aaron. Uh, I want to ask you, uh, do you have any plans to keep this controversy alive? He said, no, I don't. I said, you don't. He said, I said, you know, I'm glad to hear that. I said, I'll tell you what, what I'm going to advise you. I want to, I was going to give you some advice, but thank you for the way you do. I said, I'll give you some advice on that. First of all, politicians are fucking whores, the worst type of whores in the world. Number two is if you have not taken a tiger by the tail, this man is in a position now that the, the, the governor left, where he could do a lot of fucking harm to a lot of people. Now look, it's not an individual thing. So when Nick Savella tells you my advice to you is cool it, just cool it, I would suggest that you cool it, whatever you've been doing. He was uh, lefty, had uh, drawn the uh, Ire, he had uh, got engaged in a battle with a man named Bob List, who was the attorney general. Bob List, as attorney general, was trying to get Lefty kicked clear out and banned from the Stardust Casino. He was working there without a license because he couldn't qualify for a casino license, a gaming license anyhow. Because he had a felony offense already. In right. Of 
And that was for bribery, sports gambling bribery. Now, what kind of a guy thinks he can get a casino license when he has a felony conviction for bribing a athlete, a college athlete, to throw a basketball game? You know, go figure. That was the arrogance of Lefty Rosenthal. Kind of guy that could run a casino successfully. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what our friend Bill Friedman thinks, and, and he's right, I guess, in a way. His lefty did run it successfully. While he was there, at least as far as I can tell. Now, that was a microphone at Quinn and Peebles, which was the law office that uh, that these guys used. Right, in here downtown in Kansas, Kansas City. City. Savella. Yes, they felt really safe there. And the guy that installed it was an FBI agent whose name was H. Edward Tickle H. Jr. Yes, H. Edward Tickle Jr. And he, you know, and that was really good quality, wasn't it? That was excellent quality. You heard that a little bit of scraping? That was just something Tuffy was doing something or Nick was doing something like a ashtray or something was sitting there and was just kind of fiddling with it a little bit. You know, like here, if we start, if I start talking with my hands and I beat on the table or if I pick up a bottle of water and it crinkles a little bit, mm-hmm. how loud it sounds. Well, yeah. that was, that was some little tail. They were doing something to the table. I think it was ner- Somebody was nervously fiddling with an ashtray was my guess. Well, that. You, I think listening to that audio, you're going to have to go back and listen to it repeatedly just to really understand what they're saying somewhat. I mean, well, you have to know a lot more about the story. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of, you can you can hear them and it's relatively clear, but I think context is everything. Right. And then, you know, just uh, understanding, you know, kind of the patterns of their speech and who's speaking. Exactly. First, you got to get, get an ear for who it is. You know, I know Nick Savella's voice now. He's dead now, but I know his voice. I know Tuffy's voice now. Mm-hmm. I remember I was at my movie one time, one of uh, Tuffy's nephew was there. And so after the movie was over, he told me who he was. And he said, you know, it was really weird to hear my uncle's voice coming across that. He's long day. He was about five years dead by then. It was really weird to hear my uncle's voice because he recognized the voice. That sounded familiar to him. Mm-hmm. It'd be like me hearing, you know, my uncle's who's long dead uncle's voice coming and just having a normal conversation with somebody. Not like it was acting in a film or something. Anyhow, well, let's let's get back to Mr. Tickle. Yeah, so I mean, he had was, a secret life this all was, this, this time. This was one of three major plants that he was involved in in placing. Yeah, in these Kansas microphones. City. The, all, the all first he, being the Villa Capri. Right. The second being Quinn and People's Law Office. Right. And the third being the uh, the home of Josephine Marlowe, who is the sister of sister-in-law of Nick Savella. And they had the big meeting where they for six hours they discussed it discussed problems with the casino industry, how to how to maybe buy the Stardust that was up for sale, and how to skim from the Tropicana and other casinos. And Mr. Tickle had been in that uh, residence disguised as a Southwest Bell telephone, telephone man. repairman. Correct. Planted bugs, and, and uh, which they used. And I actually and, went back in a second time, if you listen to the episode before this one, a second time with another agent dressed in a he wasn't only the black bag man, he was the black wig man. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was quite a story. Not very, very many people know that. Not very many people know that story. We we kind of like kept it on the down low in case they ever wanted to use it again. But, you know, I think I read it in another book by an FBI agent uh, out of Las Vegas. Title that book is Straw Man. Straw men two separate words and and he was assigned to this investigation he tells about it from the las vegas and uh, gary magnuson he's in my movie i interviewed him and and he told the details of how they planted that bug and i've read it one other place so so it's, it's time anymore i mean they they probably don't need to break into your house at all i got a feeling 
I don't know for sure. Well, it's interesting but. when you talked about the bug that they would place in, or microphone they would place in the telephone, like in the, I'm assuming it's in the handset. Yeah. And their ability to activate that, even though the phone would be on the cradle, which in a normal, in a telephone of that era, if you will, uh, you know. Uh, cuts uh, off the it, signal. Yeah, it cuts off the signal. Yeah. It's uh, Pot's telephone. No, they can, they can, they could open that up. And they could open it up. Probably and, today, they just open up your cell phone and turn it. And I know you can do that. You got the right software. You can hack into people's cell phones and turn it on and listen to whatever's going on. I don't know if you saw this. There was a news article on uh, Google News about how Facebook is uh, doing just that. <laughs> and there was somebody who said, well, you know, they tested it with their phone by talking about something they were interested in like a tropical vacation yeah. and renting a car. And then they got on and then they Facebook. start getting ads. They got on Facebook and <laughs> lo and behold, what do you think they got? <laughs> I thought it was That's bad. That's kind of scary though. Isn't but it? I just like search Google for, uh, GPS location devices. When I did the story, when I did that the premium podcast and I talked about how they use GPS location devices to follow people around. And I start getting ads on my Facebook page, not from Google, but from Facebook about mm -hmm. buying GPS location devices. So, and so when you were doing and when you're doing research on the uh, on the tickle story here, and you were searching black bag men. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I searched locksmiths. I'll probably start getting locksmith stuff. I found a pretty interesting blog, a locksmith blog that talked about Ed Tickle. And I'm gonna read a couple of things that were from that blog. It's pretty interesting. These guys have kind of a small elite group throughout the United States that all know each other. These master locksmiths mm -hmm. that, that do these things. And and Ed Tickle, like for example, he created some kind of a special lock that was almost impossible to pick and had a patent on it. So, you know, he was he was into it. Well, I mean, so we kind of cover here in the first episode some of the exploits, if you will, uh, of the intelligence unit and, 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 and Ed Tickle as, uh, as le legitimately operating as an FBI agent. Right. But I don't think that was what the overall episode that we were talking about is about. Not tonight. Not, is, not this episode. Not this episode. This is going to be the, the real story about Ed Tickle break-in artist and FBI agent what was going on in the background. It was going on at that time. He led a double life. When, when Ed wasn't at work. When Ed wasn't at work, he had another job. And, you know, Ed was, he was a son of a real, real well-respected FBI agent. He was, everybody liked him. Uh, I found a book called, the, the title of the book is The FBI by an investigative reporter named Ronald Kessler. And he had a segment about all the FBI agents that he knew about that had gotten in trouble. Like one of the first stories he told about was an FBI agent who had a, a, a sideline job of a hot dog cart. And he had a girlfriend who ran the hot dog cart. Well, he had his what they called the G car, the government car, his FBI car. He would take home every night. They aren't supposed to use that for anything except work. He put a trailer hitch on it. He went to work one day. And he had something had happened and he didn't have his car and his car ends up in a wreck. So when the police get there, they find the FBI agent's car with a trailer hitch on the back of it and a hot dog vending stand on the back of that. And this young woman who said, well, I'm on my way to work to sell hot dogs all day. And this is my boyfriend's car. So they go ahead and take the report. But somehow it came out that this was his G car. And he had this hot dog business, which he used the G car to tow the hot dog stand out to the location and leave it there all day. Then he'd go on and go to work. And in this case, he actually even 
for some reason he had to, he was doing something to some other agent and he just let his girlfriend drive the car. So and then she gets he in was in trouble. <laughs> yeah. Well, he'd probably been doing this for some time. I tell you what, if, if, if you got in trouble every time to use some government car to do something uh, and uh, they found out about it, I'd be in big trouble. <laughs> I didn't even own a car for a while when I worked in the intelligence unit. Cause I had, you know, like a slick undercover car. I thought they only had two of them. Well, when we first started, they did. But later on, we had a car for everybody. And then I came back as a sergeant, and I definitely had my own car. But by the time, <laughs> by the time after a few years, it got important enough that I gave everybody had their own personal car to take home. And, uh, you know, one time we, we had a young gal that was in the, actually the narcotics unit. And she came in to the guy who dispersed the money, and she gave him a receipt, and she wanted to be reimbursed for putting gas in that car. And he looks down at the receipt and he says, well, this is like, and it was just the other side of St. Louis. It's like Alton, Illinois. And he says, well, yeah. So, well, what do you, we didn't have any case that took us out of town like that. And she said, well, you know, I had to go to a funeral of a relative. He said, well, you had to go to the funeral of a relative when you took your police car? Well, yeah. She didn't know any, she thought it was just your car to use. And she could turn in any receipt. And she could just turn in the receipt and get reimbursed for the gas, too. For I mean, at least you might use it and hope you didn't get in a wreck, And then, but you would at least buy your own gas. She And she truly didn't know. She thought that it was just your car to drive for anything, and, and that's not the way it is, folks. That is not the way it is, although we have a few of us bootlegged, all of us bootlegged a little bit around. Well, Ed Tickle. Ed Tickle bootlegged a lot. <laughs> I don't know about with his government he card. He probably didn't turn a lot of receipts in for that, though, <laughs> no. I was imagining. He, you know, and people should have suspected he had he had a five-acre horse farm in Virginia, and I would imagine that was pretty expensive. He owned a couple of really nice Porsche cars, and he would throw really lavish parties. And, and you know, they in retrospect, when they ask agents about, well, didn't you suspect anything? He said, well, they thought he had this lock that he invented, and they thought he was getting royalties off the patent mm-hmm. off the lock, which would, you know, it would make sense. That's, yeah. That would be an easy story to believe. But a normal uh, FBI agent's salary, even as a specialist like that, isn't probably $100,000 a year? No, and, and not in the 80s. It, it would have been, I mean, of course, the horse farm, the five-acre horse farm would have been less, and the horses and the porches would have been less. But he, you know, he lived a lavish lifestyle. Everybody noticed that, but mm-hmm. they thought it was from... Uh, well, especially when he was inviting him over to the party. Yeah, exactly. He was the guy that, that, that when the director's home needed to be burglar-proof, they brought Ed Tickle in. He was, you know, he was the guy. <laughs> And, and, you know, he led this secret life that nobody knew about until this is kind of Shades of Watergate, April 16th, 1980. This was about, what, about six years after he was in Kansas City platting all those microphones. There was a janitor, Ed Thornton, FBI janitor, was cleaning the FBI headquarters after hours. So, Ed, they have a, a credit union. The federal credit union is in one of, on one of the floors there, and they have an office space where you go in and you know, make deposit your money and get money out and do your business and probably borrow money. I know in our credit union, we have a, we used to be inside the headquarters and they built their own building. Mr. Thornton opens the door to the federal credit union about five 30 in the afternoon. Everybody's gone home. It's this is in FBI eighth floor of FBI headquarters. He turns on the lights to start cleaning and he starts vacuuming and he, and he all of a sudden he notices there's a guy crouching behind the counter. And, and all of a sudden, a stocky man, he described him as a stocky man with brown hair standing in front of an open safe, jumps up. 
and yells, freeze, FBI. <laughs> and it was Ed Tickle <laughs> holding a pistol on him. And, and like I said, right behind him was an open safe door. Now, Tickle would go on to claim he had received a call for help, that there was something going on. So he immediately went to the credit union. And when he walked inside, this black man was already in there. And he thought that this guy was burglarizing the place. So he was just making an arrest. Which black guy? There was no, no black guy. Ed Thornton was black. Oh, okay. Ed Thor- I, 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 Wait, I, probably, I forgot to mention that earlier. Ed Thornton was an FBI janitor who he walked in. He was a janitor who and, happened to be black. Who, who walked in and Ed Tickle was already in the He was already, unit. and he was hiding. And he waited a little bit until Mr. Thornton saw him. And then he jumps up and says, freeze FBI. I mean, you would think he's like, hey, I'm Ed Tickle. I'm a master lock picker. I'm just practicing. And that, that would have been the smart thing to do. I'm wouldn't warming it? up here for a big case. <laughs> that would have been. And, and Mr. Thornton probably just would have said, shook his head and said, yeah, all right. He might have told his boss about it, but he could have locked the safe back up and walked out. And then he played dumb after that. That, that would have been a smart thing to do. But he didn't. He, he came up with this cock and bull story. Uh, and as well, they questioned him about it, the inspection got hold of it. Didn't They're, they get? Didn't they have videotape? I mean, it's the eighth floor of the FBI office. In 1980, maybe they did, maybe they didn't. I don't know. Probably not. But, you know, and everything I read about in this book, I read about the account of it. They didn't talk about having videotape. But they did talk about interrogating him. Mm-hmm. And they had a big problem with the story because Mr. Thornton was, you know, was a well-respected longtime employee. And and how did he get in there and pick or crack the safe? How did, why were the stories different? Why was Mr. Thornton's story that he walked in and Tickle was already inside? Tickle's story is that he's outside and he sees the black man inside. So he runs in to arrest him. He thinks he's breaking into the credit union. And, and they he just take, happens to be walking by the eighth floor. Well, he said, somebody, he, no, he said he had a call for help, a call for help. So then when they asked him, well, who called you? And they tried to figure out who called him, of course, and they couldn't figure out who that was. If an uh, anonymous person had called for help up there, so they gave him a polygraph and he failed the polygraph. Now tickle. A lot of these guys like this are, are extreme narcissistic, arrogant egomaniacs. And he made this comment to the, it was the FBI's head polygraph examiner that took it. And, and the reporter that wrote this book said that Tickle, when he was told by the head FBI polygraph examiner that he was not being truthful, said Tickle replied, I knew this would come down to a contest between experts and I respect you very much. Now in the examiner's mind, Tickle was saying, yeah, you're right. I, 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 I'm an expert, you're an expert and your expertise, I'm right. You're right. I am not telling the truth. Of course, he didn't admit to anything. He's smarter mm-hmm. than that. Not that smart, but he's smarter than that. Well, they referred this to the department of justice and the U S attorney, a guy named John Hume was assigned to the case. And as he dug into it, he found this wasn't the first FBI investigation of Ed Tickle, although there had never been anything that gone outside of the Department of Justice at all was in internal investigation. He found that Tickle had been investigated for something about, I didn't get the details, but he, he stepped in as an FBI trying to help a guy who was under investigation of a burglary of a, a jewelry store in North Carolina and, and $200,000 worth of jewels were taken. So Hume went back and reopened that case and started going back over it. And apparently the agents who investigated didn't do that good a job. They must, they probably 
you know, here's Ed Tickle. They think he's just trying to help an informant or something. You can you can get by with a lot of shit when you pretend as a policeman if you're involved with informants at all by saying, oh, he was an informant. I was just trying to help him out, even though you may be taking a payoff or you may be involved. Yeah, maybe he's not an informant. Maybe he's actually an associate in the crime. Right. As it, well, as it turns out, this guy was. Uh, Tickle claimed that, I believe Tickle claimed he was an informant, or at least he used his FBI position to help this guy out on this burglary that he was caught on. Now, this is all just kind of mounting evidence against Tickle in terms of... Correct. So they'd already caught him at the credit union, at the FBI headquarters. Yeah, but there they're was unsure. of that, so now they continue an internal investigation. Well, what it is, it's it's the outside investigator, the U.S. Department of Attorneys, just uh, uh, U.S. Department. It's the outside investigator that gets hold of this, and he goes back and looks at this old investigation that they had just dropped and didn't press. He opens it back up and starts looking at it, and he finds out he does some some more checking. And he finds out that Tickle's credit card had been used in the area in North Carolina where this diamond theft or this burglary or this diamond shop or jewelry shop had happened. In and about the time of the robbery. Yes, and, and so he started digging even more into Tickle's activities and found that he had been suspected of other crimes. One in particular was as a strange crime's misappropriation of government property. And that was FBI radios. Now, here, th- this story just keeps getting stranger. Ed Tickle was some kind of a part-time member of Richard Petty's pit crew, who was, and Richard Petty was the NASCAR driver of the 1970s and 80s. Maybe it, he was the guy that was like, in case they lost a key to get the car started. <laughs> he didn't make another key. I don't yeah. think for those NASCAR cars, they need <laughs> keys. I thought they just had a switch. Yeah, I don't know. We, we can't get in the trunk of this thing. The door won't open. <laughs> Somebody call Ed Tickle. <laughs> yes. Well, he's part of our pit crew. Come yeah. on over here, Ed. <laughs> and, and they said, what I read was, if you look at the video of, or must be on uh, YouTube, must be a video of this. Uh, 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 of Richard 19, Petty. Yeah, Richard Petty's uh, 1979 Daytona 500 win. Why Ed Tickle is the dark, curly-headed guy sitting on the hood of Petty's car as he drives, takes his victory lap. The radios that the misappropriation of government property were what he was doing. They were really high-quality handheld radios that had their own separate little frequency and he took those to the races and you know the Richard Petty would have one the crew would have one they'd have a spotter up high I don't know exactly how all they do this but it really it because they did that and it helped them win races by all this extra communication mm-hmm. all the NASCAR drivers started using good radios to Communicate, communicate, with the pit crew. communicate with the pit crew and, and, you know, maybe a spotter up there and, tell, and let him, let him know who's where and, and what's going on, who, who, you know, where he needs to be positioned and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, well, that, it seems this guy was just I wonder crazy. how, you know, Ed Tickle kind of came to know Richard Petty. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, he was like the kind Richard of guy Petty, that... Richard Petty comes home one day and there's Ed Tickle in his house. <laughs> I just let myself in. Well, you know, when you are an FBI agent or, or even a local policeman, you get thrown into situations with famous people every once in a while mm-hmm. and you may make friends with them. Uh, I, I've seen those kinds of things happen before. I haven't, I can't think of a an exact situation. Mm-hmm. Like, I think there was a Denver policeman that was real close to Elvis because he was just one of his... his you know, protection crew whenever he, like when, when, uh, when a big time group comes to town, 
you're part of the you, you know, off-duty job usually, but you'll be part of his security, security. and maybe real close, and you get to talking to him. Maybe, you know, they probably, something like that, or he was investigating something in and around Richard Petty's NASCAR, or he had, you know. He must have made an met impression. Met him somehow and made an impression. More than just of his keys. <laughs> and plus, he was bringing them free radios to use and, and really good ones. <laughs> they also started finding out he had been selling stolen rings and loose diamonds. And, he, and, and as they dug into it even more, they found out he was involved in selling stolen cars. It was crazy. Now, uh, and the guy starts putting all this together, and I don't know a lot of details. I couldn't find out a lot of details about that. But what I do know, details I do know, they they had a trial for burglarizing the FBI credit union. He got a not guilty on that. That was a shaky charge for burglarizing the FBI credit union. Yeah, but he had no good story as to why he, he was didn't. really he, there. It was just his word against the other guys. Exactly. And that's, you know, it comes the other to, guy was a janitor and he's Ed Tickle. He, and he's Ed Tickle. Only, only one of them's hanging out with Richard Petty. He gets a not guilty on that. Uh, you have to prove somebody guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. He he did plead guilty to a misdemeanor on misappropriating those radios. And after a nine-day trial on the rest of the charges on the jewelry theft and transportation of stolen goods, making false statements, obstruction of justice, and tax evasion, they really went into everything on this guy. He got convicted, and he got a prison term of eight years. Ed Tickle claimed as part of his defense that it was just a government vendetta because he had once informed on FBI Director William Webster that he knew about black bag jobs to install eavesdropping eavesdropping devices that were conducted without court permission. And and everybody wants to think the FBI goes out and, and does illegal wiretaps and puts illegal microphones in, and, and I can promise you they do not as an organization. Ed Tickle would have done that if he needed to do to do something, but as an organization, they do not do that. Well, if they were going to do that, the person they would call would be Ed Tickle to do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and, and he did show a little remorse. He, he got these eight years, and, and they got him up in front of the judge, and, and he did make this statement. I'm sorry to cause all these problems. I have made some bad judgments. Now, that's kind of an understatement, isn't it? I've made some bad judgments. <laughs> now, they sentenced him to eight years, right? Yes. How, and at the he uh, what jail are they going to keep him in that he's not going to be able to break out of? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> He's, it'd be like Hannibal Lecter. They'll just have to put him in a cage and tie him to the chair and, and keep his hands tied and something over his mouth the whole time. I mean, he gets a safety pin. He might be out unless it's his he, own lock. He doesn't even on. need a safety yeah, unless it's his own lock. He doesn't even need a safety pin. I think he can just, like, look at it and make it unlock. <laughs> this guy was amazing. Uh, the, the Bureau did say at the time it was the stiffest sentence that had ever been handed to an agent convicted of criminal charges. I think there's there's been more since. He had that agent up in, that uh, was Whitey Bulger's contact. That he, I think they convicted him of murder or being party to a murder that uh, Whitey Bulger did. I, he may have gotten life. He got a long time. I know that. You know, uh, Tickle appealed. You know, I talked about how they investigated him for being part of a stolen car ring, mm-hmm. which doesn't make sense at all, but who knows, uh, this guy. He was on. He had an appeal, and he wanted an appeal bond, and uh, and he, they set a really high bond. And his lawyer did a 
bond reduction hearing. You, you can get an extra hearing. If your bond, you feel like it's too high and you can't pay it, but you promise you'll appear, you might be able to go to the judge and, and ask them formally at a hearing that the bond be reduced and make some arguments about why the judge should reduce it. Like, for example, you could say, you know, he's going to win this appeal. Because That's all you of this, say. This, well, yeah, you would have to have reasons. You could say he, and that'd be a, that would be an argument you'd make. All, mm -hmm. it, 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 this case is going to get overturned, and they're going to at least have to go back and have a new trial for this reason, this reason, this reason. And the judge might buy that argument if, if it looks good, and and reduce your bond so you can be, you don't have to go to the joint this whole time while you're waiting on your appeal to be heard, because it maybe takes six months or a year. The prosecutors had figured out, and so they alleged in, in opposing this bond reduction, they alleged that he had been driving a stolen van. It, it seems that there was a van that he they proved he drove to the courthouse during his original tire during his original trial. The local police had towed it for a parking violation near the federal courthouse and then pounded it. And when they checked the license and the VIN on it, the Alexandria police that was in Alexandria, Virginia. The Alexandria police found that it was a stolen van he was driving. Now, his lawyer said he's convinced that Tickle didn't know that that vehicle was stolen. Now, I don't know how you end up in a stolen car and you're an FBI agent and you didn't know it was stolen. Oh, wait a second. But it was still, it was a, a van that had been impounded. Well, that's, he was driving. He drove it to court. Yeah. He parked it illegally. They towed it. And they put it in the impound lot. Okay. So when they do that, they take R the VIN and the license plate it. number and they run it. And the license plate probably didn't come back to a stolen car. They would have known it right there on the street. But they run that VIN when they get in the impound lot, and that's when they found out it was stolen. And Tickle says he didn't know that it was he stolen. He didn't know it was stolen. <laughs> but odds are he might have been a prime suspect. This guy's a piece of work. His lawyer ended up his plea with good people make mistakes. If Peter could deny Christ three times, Ed Tickle could cover up a crime. Now, I'm not sure the logic of that, but really must have must have really had a lot of evidence against him because uh, that's just throwing yourself on the mercy. And when you bring in Peter denying Christ three times as a rationalization for covering up your crimes, that's uh, that's a first stretch. Well, there were three things. At least, you know. <laughs> yeah, at least, yeah. There van, was van, stolen the, the, cars. Stolen, well, there were other stolen, stolen jewelry. Cars, there was stolen car rings, stolen jewelry, and radio. So there were three things. I guess he was kind of like Peter. I don't know. <laughs> U.S. Attorney John Hume countered with, he betrayed his office. He sold his office for criminal gain, which is always what they tell you when you're law enforcement and you got caught stealing. What else is it? <laughs> what else is there? He'd sell your office for criminal gain. It's not over with yet. It's a it's a little bit, and they they had a Virginia state court case. After that, he was convicted of receiving and then selling again a hundred twenty thousand dollars in these stolen cars. Now, I don't know any of the details, but he was part of an auto theft ring. He must have had connections to uh, had people out stealing cars, and he was probably he's probably like this guy I knew once. He would the guy would go and he would get in the car and find the key code. Back in the day, you could get a key code out of the car. It would be with your new car papers. There was a key code in there. He would get the key code out. He had taken a locksmith course. He would make the key. Then he had another guy he'd hire. He, the guy, that guy would go out about 4 o'clock in the morning and take your car with the key. And then he had a farm down by Warrensburg, and, and the 
a guy who actually stole the car would take it down to Orangeburg. And there was another guy down there who was a body guy and he would cut it up into parts. And, and my guy who was kind of a half-ass informant would then, he had contacts with body shops all over the Midwest and he would call them up and say, okay, I've got a, uh, this is in the seventies. I've got a 78 Cadillac Coupe de Ville, white in color. You need anything like that? Does anybody need that? And, you know, today you'd put it on Craigslist, I guess. But, uh, so, you know, if you needed a door, uh, car had been hitting the side, you need a door. Why then this guy would deliver the door to you. So it's probably something like that more than likely, but he ain't over with yet. Wait a second. So the, the federal judge sentenced this, uh, Edward Ed Tickle, who's an FBI agent, uh, to eight years. He's got eight years for the prison. He uh, appealed it. The appeal failed. Uh, yeah, he never did win his appeal. He 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 tried to get his bond reduced so he could get back out. The had a really high bond. He didn't get that didn't done. Didn't get that done. Because he got caught st- driving a stolen car to the trial. And then you say here in your notes, he was acquitted on six other charges. Yeah, I don't know what those were. They just they'll overcharge the heck out of you whenever the government goes after you. They'll charge you with everything, but it's everything like spitting on the sidewalk and you know maybe taking an extra day off and lying about it or you know mm-hmm. they'll charge you with everything i don't know what those were they were throwaway charges they, they got their eight years and for the uh, actual uh, uh transportation and dealing in stolen property which is what they wanted but it isn't over with yet and then of course the state court charges him and convicts him gets a concurrent sentence i think on that one with dealing in stolen autos now He's again charged in Prince George's County, which is just outside of Washington, D.C. I, I think Prince George's, let's see, Delaware. Is that in Prince George's County? I'm not sure, but I think it's, I think it's, uh, yeah, that, I think it's up in Delaware because he was, the other things had been happening down in Virginia. Was charged with second degree rape, and that was for having sex with the daughter of one of his many lawyers. I guess he'd gone through several lawyers. The daughter, who was 20 at the time, had a learning disability and epilepsy. Tickle ended up pleading guilty to second-degree sex offense, and that's having sex with force or the threat of force. And I think it was because she had the learning disability. Mm-hmm. Uh, his twenty, he got a twenty-year sentence for that. That was going to run concurrently with the federal sentence. He was of eight years. He was already serving. So that was the last we saw of Mr. Tickle. He never got the opportunity to break out of prison. He didn't live that long. He lived a he lived a, a long enough time because he just died in 2012. No, did he get out of prison then? No, he never got out. They didn't. I mean, if he was fortunate that they served this concurrent sentencing as opposed to consecutive. Yeah. And he probably had to serve. So he did his eight, but then he still had 12 more to go on the uh, sex crime. On the sex crime. And, you know, and, and he might have got parole. I'm not sure. This was that, it was 1980 when that happened. And so that was 22 years later when he died. You know, he may, he probably did get out, actually. He was, he was 71 years old. I just didn't find anything, any information about him after he got out. Mm-hmm. Other than that, there was a funeral home that posted up some information. Just posted a real simple kind of a uh, obituary. Just said he was a former FBI agent and. And he died, Colorado Springs, Colorado, on March third, two thousand twelve, at the age of seventy-one. Now, on this one blog site, it was a locksmith's blog site. They were—that's where I kind of got onto this story. They were talking about him and and his son. Made up, made up. So a, his, but his dad, 
So he was actually H. Edward Tickle Jr. His father also was in the was FBI. H. Edward Tickle Sr. was an FBI agent. And then now, fast forward here to after now, like 2012. Yeah, and, after he's dead. And, but he has a son and his son. His son is not H. Edward Tickle. I'm not sure what his son's name was. I had it. It was in there. It was something Tickle, but I, I don't know what his son's name was. But his son tells about how the family is now trying to get a TV show in honor of him using his true events and cases. Uh, they think that there was a movie stolen from his dad. It was called Mark for Murder. And I tried to look that up, and then I ran out of time before I got here. So I have to look that up, Mark for Murder. And it must be about some of Ed Tickle's explo- exploits. But a, a son will always love his father, no matter what he does. He said he he would try and teach me so much, and I'm taking those lessons, trying to make myself as diverse as he was. He knew how to do anything. He loved restoring cars, building things, inventing anything that would be better than what's out there. He could never leave anything alone. He always had to make it better. He taught me everything from working on cars to how to capture and treat animals. He wants anybody that would like to hear any stories or ask questions or share a story to email him. So maybe we'll do that. I don't know. I don't know how deep I want to get into this deal. Would it be something that maybe we could do to talk to his son? Well, we we possibly could. I just don't know if I really want to. Yeah, I mean, we like to get the words from the mouth of the man that did it. Well, this this would be the son. this, This would be the son. And obviously the son might be a little biased. Yeah, sure, he would be. I, I, I don't know. But maybe, you know, he could tell some of those great stories. Well, I don't think it's, he you would. Know, don't don't, don't uh, let the truth get in the way of a good story. Yeah, I don't think the son will know any of the crime stories, though. I don't imagine. I never told my son any of my crime stories. No. He's got to listen to the podcast. He has to listen to the podcast. Scott, <laughs> you got to listen to the podcast to find out about what I used to do. Oh, he knows some of them, but not a lot of them. And another guy, I think was from the uh, State Department Intelligence, made some comments about him. He said, Ed was one of the finest lock and safe men in the world. He could open anything or impression a lock from a key blank faster than any master locksmith I have ever met. And I've met quite a few of them. He could also dial any safe S&G ever manufactured, much to the chagrin of fellow, several fellow intelligence types. He lived life to the fullest. I call guys like us friendly sociopaths, adrenaline junkies, born without an off button. Unfortunately, we become the victims of our own genius, and sometimes it has its way with us. Sometimes it has its way with us. But he was a, was and is a good man, a loving father and husband, and a pirate of old from JSRP. So that thus ends the story of Ed Tickle Jr., master locksmith and former FBI agent. What do you think about that, Aaron? It's crazy, isn't it? That is crazy. He probably had a, a good life in the agency, and it wasn't enough. No, that's what you're right. Well, I just, just like this guy said, he was an adrenaline junkie and kind of a friendly sociopath. He, he didn't have that. He probably didn't think it was a big deal to borrow the agency radios to no, use them no. at NASCAR. With it's hell, rich, he's probably like it's Richard Petty. Yeah, hell, I've done stuff like that, man. <laughs> we all have. <laughs> <laughs> I once moved and and we used to have a big old steak bed truck and I went down to the garage. I didn't know I was a young policeman and divorced and and I didn't have a I didn't want to rent a truck so I just went down to the garage and said, hey, I need to borrow the truck and they said, well, sure. <laughs> so me and another guy go take the truck and move me. <laughs> You didn't turn any receipts in for no, gas. No, we didn't turn any receipts in for gas. I'm smarter than that. 
I may be a criminal, but I'm not a bad criminal. Yeah. <laughs> I think most everybody's probably uh, embezzled a little bit from their company, don't you imagine? You know, I think it happens. It just depends on the the nature of the person. What, what do they do I, in the I restaurant get, business? I, well, I get I'm I'm kind of a hall monitor. <laughs> oh, so you catch them? Huh? So I'm kind of the guy that no one likes because I'm you know I'm kind of by the rules. Yeah. And that's just kind of kind of hardwired that way for yeah. me, where it's really hard to just turn my back and act like it's not going on. You're a good guy. What it's are they? like why. Why should you get to do this? Nobody else does. What, what do they want okay to do in a restaurant? You. What do they want to do? Free they, food. Free food. Free food. Give customers free drinks or whatever. Oh, Give okay. them extra sauces. You know, there's there's been questions at times. They they've kind of locked down the point of sale system so people can't come in and. And order just give a whole, discounts. Right. You know. You can't order a whole meal and get it out there without having a ticket generated. Yeah, that because there's been questions of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's tracked pretty well. But uh, things still happen. And uh, I just, I'm that guy. And I guess I'm okay with that because somebody has to be. Somebody has to be. You know, when I was the treasurer for the Independent Filmmakers Coalition here in Kansas City, Missouri, uh, before I was president, I... Uh, I would, was the only signer on an account, and we had, I don't know, at the point, probably the most money we had in the account. It was for a fiscal sponsorship program. It was other people's money. Yeah. For sure. Uh, but it was probably 160 some thousand dollars wow. or more. Wow. And uh, and there, no one else could sign for it but me. But, I mean, I, I stroked out a $60,000 check for a project. Didn't, ask, didn't have to ask the board. I mean, they submitted their materials. It was their money, everything. You know, it looked up and above board in terms of what the money was for and, you know, and, and so did that. And, uh, you know, I suppose I could have taken the money and disappeared. But you could have. What would I have done? They probably would have found me, I don't know, in some other city doing the same thing. <laughs> yeah. So I wouldn't be too hard to find. You know, we all we all have a, a different kind of a, a, a moderator on those kinds of little corruptions that, that some people do. Some people have absolutely no capacity to take anything that, that, that almost to the point of they'll hurt themselves before they'll do anything that mm. that. In, in on their code that isn't quite, you know, kosher, that isn't quite above board. Some of us are a little more, have some more gray areas in our lives. And some people like Mr. Tickle, there is no line in his life. It's only what he wants. And I've known a lot of people like that. Uh-huh. My line is, uh, uh, is a little bit over the edge, but not too far over the edge. Well, we talked about this when we uh, first did the hijacking episodes uh, about Martin J. McNally and uh you know how when he parachuted from the plane he got separated from the money and uh, the he, farmer he never found it and the, a farmer finds it and w- what did he do well he turned it in and when you listen to those episodes it was it wasn't necessarily clear if he wanted to well martin cleared that up for yeah. us didn't he so you all have to listen ahead to when martin tells a story of the farmer and what he wanted to do with that money but we uh i think you kind of question me what would you do if you were in that situation and that's a hard question to answer i think you know you it would be difficult to, for anybody really you know just to, if you walked up on a, a big bag of money as i used to kid a friend of mine on the job i said you know what do you do when you find that briefcase full of money that nobody wants to claim because those criminals out there and, and it's been a problem with all the money that went into narcotics business over the years i have seen you know twenty thirty thousand dollars found in a guy's glove compartment 
And he's happy just, if you just let him go, he's happy just to let, let that money walk and he'll never ask another question about it. So, mm. you know, where, where do you do? Or maybe you got $20,000. So you take out $5,000 and you log in the property room, $15,000. And then he's going to say, well, and, I had 20 and he's going to have 20. Well, sure. You had 20. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and I would imagine a little bit of that's happened because there was so much money flowing the streets during the uh, crack days when. As Starbuck and, and Barton, David Starbuck and David Barton talked about in the recent episodes about the Jamaican drug policies, there was a lot of money out there. There was houses full of money. That's one story I need to tell is the two kids that found the cash house. You know, David Barton talked about finding a cash house. Mm-hmm. I don't know what he had, $180,000, I think he found in it, something like that. Well, these kids found a cash house and they took it all. And they, they went out and started buying tracksuits and uh, Went out to Bannister Mall, bought track suits and athletic for shoes for everybody, for all their friends. Everybody in the neighborhood knew they'd come into some uh, bunch of money. And then the crooks were out trying to find them and the police were out trying to find them. I got to find the reports on that. There's a question of who's going to find them first. Right. I believe the police found them first. I don't remember. That's why I got to find the reports. It's probably lucky, though. <laughs> really? They're not probably going to come back with receipts and have the criminals that had the money <laughs> make them return all the track suits so they can get their money back. We set a policeman up one night. We knew he was stealing, so we got an FBI agent to be in a, act like he was an apartment manager, and he called the police, and we knew this guy was going to get the call. We made sure he got it by himself. So the apartment manager then takes him. He said, well, he said, I've got this apartment upstairs, and the door's open. That guy hasn't been there for several days, and I stuck my head in. I don't know what's going on. So the policeman said, well, let's go up and check, and they go up and walk around look around in there and, and they, and there's a bunch of money. There's a whole bunch of cash money laying out. So the policeman says, well, he said, I probably ought to take this and put it in the property room. So he takes the money. So we think we've got him, but they're following him around. And I think what happened, they kept following him around. He was suspected already of doing something like this. And, and we had a couple of three crews on him trying to follow him around the rest of the night. They should have just backed off because when they get to the station, they're all in the station and he gets to the station and he walks in and he takes all that money and sits down and logs dutifully logs it in and puts it in the property room. I think what happened is he spotted surveillance and then realized this, the whole thing was just too weird. It was a setup. It was a setup. It was too easy. Yes, because about a year later, he actually got sought, caught at a crack house off duty selling crack. So oh, <laughs> he ends up getting it in the end anyhow. So those are my stories on corruption, personal corruption and other corruption. Now you know that I might borrow a truck from my work and go move. And, and Aaron, don't be doing anything in front of Aaron because he'll bust you. So. I will just knock you out. <laughs> he'll knock you I'm, out in a second. They, I guess what they called me at work was a dry snitch. A dry snitch. I only <laughs> knock you out if it's a big deal. <laughs> I'm not sure what a dry snitch. If it's a real deal crime, what I'm, I consider a real deal crime. I'm guessing a dry snitch is the guy who uh, snitches on you but because he's not doing the the same thing <laughs> right <laughs> he's not participating in the felonious activities yes all right well i think that's all i got did we ever make a mention of our you know, we didn't favorite a, nonprofit? we didn't do uh the last episode we i forgot to do my public service announcement why don't we i'll do that and we'll go out from there how about that aaron all right if you have a friend relative or yourself 
has a problem with drugs or alcohol or any kind of compulsive behavior, which is causing you trouble at work or in your personal life, whether it be gambling, drugs, alcohol, make your first call to first call. Call 816-361-5900 or go to their website. What's their website, Aaron? www.firstcallkc.org. I think that's all I got. Say goodnight, Aaron. Goodnight, Aaron. Music provided by Odd Omatic. Follow them on Facebook at Odd Omatic Music.